0: Well, the video that played at the beginning of church, you know, I hadn't... Steve had sent it to me. I hadn't actually watched it all the way through. I hate to confess that. But, uh, you know, she is on her cell phone looking at Facebook, and she sets her her phone down, and I want to tell you something that shot through my mind. She has my phone. It's the same phone, the same profile, the same case, everything. It's a little too close to home, I think. You know, I think, frankly... The Bible, reading the Bible can be a lot like scrolling through an Instagram or Facebook feed. Um, what you're seeing looks really great. But it's only part of the story. You all, I, I hope you all know this phenomenon, right? People post things on Facebook about how great things are and how it's the best day ever. And they'll post things like YOLO, you only live once. Um, and it creates in people this sense of FOMO, fear of missing out. I don't know if people know these phrases or not. Um, Social media has created this phenomenon where you post your best side, let's say. (laughs) You post as though things are going as well as they have ever gone. And often what happens is things aren't going that well. And so you post pictures that are a little bit misleading. And you even try to one-up your friends on it. And the thing is, if you post a picture that shows how great you're enjoying life, you get likes and comments and shares, and it feels really good. And then there's another side to this, right? You post pictures of how great your life is going, and other people see them, and they think, I wish my life was going that well. And you get the envy that builds up in you. This is a huge cultural phenomenon right now where, where people put on faces. Well, almost exactly a year ago, there was a podcast host from BuzzFeed who posted uh, a challenge that sought to kind of bring to light the gap between appearance and reality. She wrote this: "I'm curious. If you're comfortable doing so, post a picture of you that you shared on social media where you were actually having a really tough time in life, even though you look perfectly fine in the picture." And lots of people responded. There was a picture of a young mom with a child. And the caption read, I hadn't slept in months and had raging postpartum anxiety. I loved her but mostly wanted to run away. I was tired and angry and scared all the time. Another was a couple at a wedding. They looked picture perfect. I like this one because I have a dozen pictures like this of Amanda and I at weddings and friends' weddings and things. But the woman of this in this picture wrote, "At a friend's wedding, both those smiles are fake because we'd been fighting. I still cringe seeing my body language in that photo. I remember feeling guilty that our friends would know and that we'd be a distraction from a happy and important day." Finally, there was a woman who posted a picture of herself in front of the Grand Canyon, which I really liked because, again, I went to school about an hour from the Grand Canyon. I've been there many times. I have pictures like this. This is what she wrote. I took this on a solo road trip during one of the more major depressive episodes of my adult life. It was a relatively good trip during which I spent a lot of time crying alone in my car or motel room. You know what is so riveting about these stories is their honesty and authenticity. We all know what it's like to put on a smile, to fake it till you make it, as they say. And we all know that what it's like to look at other people and feel envy that they have it all figured out, that they have figured out happiness and joy. But I wonder about what it would mean to dig deeper. To explore whether or not what is being presented is is what's really going on. What would it mean for us to learn to suspend our initial judgments and recognize that beneath the surface there may be more to learn, that nobody else has it as figured out as it looks, that below there might be more to the story? So today in the Bible we're going to read a passage out of the book of Isaiah, And it is a passage from the very end of this very long book. Literally, chapter 66. There is no Isaiah 67. This is the end. It is a passage of jubilation, of renewal, of celebrating the work of God. And yet, in the previous chapters, there has been so much more going on in the life of Israel. The condemnation of the people by God, the ignoring and the turning away from the covenant, the exile itself and all the messiness that came with it, it's all part of the history. And if you choose to read just this one passage out of context, you miss a lot. It's just like with the Facebook and Instagram pictures. If you just look at the surface, you miss everything else going on. So, here now, our reading from the 66th chapter of Isaiah. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious bosom. For thus says the Lord, I will extend prosperity to her like a river and the wealth of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees." As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you; you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice; your body shall flourish like the grass, and it shall be known that the hand of the Lord is with his servants, and his and his indignation is against his enemies. Well, may God bless this reading. Well, it it is really easy to take scripture out of context. It happens all the time as well. Um, if you know somebody who is trying to accomplish something great, think like an athlete. You might give them a word of encouragement and say, Don't forget, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me or th- strengthens you. There are posters with this, right? It is a word of encouragement that you can accomplish anything you set your mind to, except that if you read the rest of the passage in Corinthians, It's not really about followers of Christ being able to do great things. Rather, it is Paul explaining to his followers the hardships that he's been through. The prison and the beatings and the the difficulty he has had as an apostle. And it's about how he's been able to persevere. That he's been able to make do with what he has. And so I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is about not accomplishing great things, but getting through a hard time. Or if if you know somebody who is struggling with their call or with what God wants them to be, you might read Jeremiah. This is the one, by the way, that Amanda made me throw in. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, and say, see, God has plans for you. And you can feel the inspiration from that, can't you? Except if you read what the passage is about, it is not about an individual. It is about the community of ancient Israel. Ancient Israel in exile. The "you" in that is not a singular, it is a plural. It's about the plans for Israel at a specific time and place. And if you read on, and this is the part that Amanda wanted me to put in, if you read on, this turns into a really brutal passage um, about God's vengeance being doled out on those who remained in Jerusalem. It turns into a really ugly let's just say not posterable, quote, really quickly. Or another one, and this is pertinent today, um, we may say that God has promised to rebuild the temple of Israel and then say that the temple of Israel needs to be rebuilt today, except that every prophecy in the Bible that prom- where God promises that he will rebuild the temple is fulfilled in Scripture. It's just that <laughs> The temple got knocked down again in 70 AD. And so Jesus talks about rebuilding the temple after this, but he doesn't say he's going to build it in Jerusalem. He says he will build it in our hearts. All this is to say that Scripture is part of a much larger narrative, and if you just single out one verse, you're missing a lot of it. You can make it say things that it doesn't actually say. And so I think today's verse would would fit this case pretty well. You see, Isaiah is a big book. There's sixty-six chapters, and historians often will split it into three different books that got put under one name. So the first thirty nine chapters of Isaiah are what are called the pre exilic Isaiah. They happen before Israel goes into exile. And so there are a ton of warnings and condemnations. Israel has turned away from Yahweh, and Yahweh is speaking through the prophet to the people about their ways. And then you get to chapter 49, and it completely changes, so much so that historians believe that somebody else wrote this. The people are in Babylon. They have been exiled. They are far away from home, and the message here shifts to one of hope, that God will remain with the people in their exile. And that there will be a day in the future when things will be made right. And finally, we get to the third Isaiah, the last few chapters of the book. Israel has been liberated from their exile. They are on their way back home. And they are beginning the process of rebuilding Jerusalem. And it's taking a little while, probably longer than expected, And there is some fear that maybe they won't be able to rebuild the city. I just think about the road out front and how long that's taken. Just imagine how long it would take to rebuild an entire city. And so the end of the book is this promise from the prophet saying, don't worry, we'll get there. Jerusalem will again be lifted up. And so just think about what would happen if you just read today's passage and didn't have the rest of Isaiah to look to. You would have God's people... The people who have resided in Jerusalem, who are not only the chosen people, but they are to be celebrated. And frankly, it's possible to read this, approach, this passage and think that Jerusalem is beyond reproach. It is possible to read this passage and not know the anguish that these people have faced. You can read this passage and not know the content of the covenant, to not know God's special relationship with the people of Israel. You don't necessarily know the struggle that they have had. There is a history to these people. There is a history to God's relationship with these people. And frankly, God's relationship with ancient Israel is never one thing, It is always many things. If you were to go on Facebook and look up the relationship status of Israel and God, it would say it's complicated. And so, how do we understand the world around us? Do we accept what we see and hear as it is? This applies both to Scripture and just to the world in general. Because we do live in a world today that just lacks understanding. We often just, we we are prone to taking easy answers over digging deeper and asking about the more complicated truth. Because the truth is, life is complicated. Just like God's relationship with Israel, life is complicated. Every person lives through periods that are ups and downs, and often both at the same time. When I was young, my mom used to tell me that Your 20s are this chaotic period where you feel like nothing's going to work out, and then your 30s, you kind of figure it out. And what I'm learning now in my early 30s is that my 20s were up and down, and it's not that my 30s are not up and down, it's that I expect it to be up and down, and you can roll with the punches better. Because nobody gets through life without periods of feeling lost. Nobody gets through life without depression and sadness and grief. You just don't do it. That is part of life. And I think that's one of the great things about Scripture. It represents the complexity. It is not one thing. It is not all good and all bad. It is not all chaos or all order. Just think about Isaiah, the ups and the downs, the ways that we wander away from our relationship with God, the way we find ourselves in exile at times, and the way God welcomes us back. This book tells the story not of life how we would want it to be, but life how it actually is. It is the book that is the story of life. And so whatever place you find yourself in, whether you are experiencing joy and celebration, or whether you are lost in grief, whether you are wandering or just getting by, it's here. because the story of God's relationship with God's people is dynamic full of twists and complex and that's what we get in scripture this up and down this back and forth I'm reminded of the words of Ian McLaren which I read on Facebook once by the way be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle So we must learn, I think, in scripture and in life to dig deeper, to seek a greater understanding, to seek to know life as this complex, dynamic, fluid thing we all live in. To not begin at the verse taken out of context, to not proof text people's lives, but to seek to understand what's really going on What is really there? For, as I said, we live in a world that lacks understanding and we live in a world that so desperately needs understanding to not just end at the surface level of, is that person like me or not? But to be willing to seek deeper, to ask deeper questions about it. Amen. Well, we come to this time in church when we offer an invitation to those who have been worshiping with us. If you would like to join this church to transfer of membership or confession of faith, we invite you down this aisle. We, as church, we put on a face sometimes, but I promise there is more than enough of life's ups and downs here, of the chaos, of the not trying to control what God will do. And so we invite the members of this church to reflect on the ways in which God's love is present in all things in this place. We invite you to stand and join us in our hymn of of commitment, number 322.